Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. I am persuaded that there is a question carried inside of every human heart. A question that you can see in those moments when people are really being honest. You can see it in their eyes or, or hear it in the quivering of their voice. And that question is this. Can I have any hope? Can I have any hope? For too many in our world today, the answer is no. For too many people, the answer is no. There's not any hope to be found. It's not going to be found from the next technological device. It's not going to be found from the next political leader. It's not going to be found in anything that this world can offer. For too many in our world, the answer is no. There can't be found any hope. Witness the increase over the last several years of what have been called the deaths of despair. Deaths by suicide, drug abuse, alcoholism and its effects. Deaths of despair, researchers call it. Despair, which literally means a loss of hope. Can I have any hope? For too many, the answer is no, you can't. But according to Peter in the epistle reading that we read a moment ago, here is an opportunity for us as Christians, for those who do possess an unshakable hope. Peter wrote this, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. To give an account for the hope that is in you. Peter's saying people are going to ask because they're all asking in their heart of hearts, can I have any hope when they see you and me, with a hope, a hope that's inexplicable according to the, the rationale and the wisdom of this world, they're going to ask. Because you and I have that hope that is founded and grounded in Christ that cannot be taken away, that's not vouchsafed according to any worldly circumstances, but instead is kept in heaven, held fast in Christ. It's been guaranteed by the cross and by that empty tomb. We have that hope and people are going to ask. They do ask. And then, what do you say? How do you give an account for the hope? What's what I want to talk about this morning? Because in the first reading that we heard today, this glimpse from the book of Acts, Paul provides for us a, a picture and a paradigm, a, a pattern, a template for how you and I can also give an account of this hope that is in us. And friends, this is such a vital task for us to carry out today when the world, the world is aching and longing for hope, true hope. That's the task, that's the privilege that we have as believers. How do we do it? Let's look to and listen to St. Paul to see how he does it. And there's really three parts to this that I want to unpack this morning. First of all, he claims common ground. Secondly, he connects to Christ. And then thirdly, he calls to action. He claims, he connects, and he calls. It's weird how often in the Bible things are alliterative for preachers. It just works out so well for us. <laughs> First of all, he claims common ground. So Paul starts by affirming and observing. Listen to this. He says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul is in the city of Athens, this great ancient city which was profoundly pagan. It had all sorts of different gods. It worshipped all manners of members of the pantheon, all of the gods that were there according to Mount Olympus. And Paul, first of all, affirms that impulse. He says, yes, I see that you guys are very religious. And you can imagine the people in the audience saying, yes, we are, aren't we, right? He's kind of building a rapport. He's gaining a hearing. But then he continues on that common ground by saying, and I I also noticed this altar that you have to an unknown God. He links up with something that they've already professed and conceded. He says, but what you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. Paul starts on this common ground, building rapport, gaining a hearing. And then in the course of his preaching, he invokes what you might think of as kind of ancient Greece's pop culture, okay? He quotes from a couple of their own poets. He says, I have heard in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul is quoting from ancient poets, uh, Greek pagan poets. He's saying, you know what? Those guys were actually onto something. Paul is speaking their language. He's drawing on their own kind of cultural collective memory in order then to connect it up to the gospel. As believers, we do this too. We do this too when we find those kind of touch points, touchstones, whether it be talking about the the TV show that we were watching, the things that we were streaming, or or, uh, gathering around, you know, shared lament about the lions, or now finally perhaps a little bit of hope. We, maybe, uh, we look for those opportunities, those touchstones of common ground, then to move forward in that proclamation. So Paul does here. Why do we do that? We don't just do it to to be cool or to stay relevant, but we do it to connect. This is why your preacher does it, right? This is why I'm quoting movies and talking about things from pop culture and so forth. One, it's because I'm a nerd, which you know. But secondly, to help to connect, right? To connect the message to our everyday lives. It's just like what Paul is doing here. You know, we connect even more profoundly when it's not just, you know, quoting some bit of pop culture but also, and even more so, when we connect on the common ground of our shared, broken, beaten humanity. As fellow fallen people who are struggling and striving, often suffering. I heard a great phrase from a book that's fast become one of my favorite novels, uh, A Gentleman in Moscow. And that phrase is, the confederacy of the humbled. Confederacy of the Humbled. In the the novel, the author puts it this way. The Confederacy of the Humbled is a close-knit brotherhood whose members travel with no outward markings, but who know each other at a glance. Those in the Confederacy share a certain perspective, knowing that beauty, influence, fame, and privilege to be borrowed rather than bestowed, they're not easily impressed. They're not quick to envy or to take offense. They certainly don't scour the papers and search their own names. They remain committed to living among their peers, but they greet adulation with caution, ambition with sympathy, and condescension with an inward smile. That's the confederacy of the humbled, and all of us are part of it. We claim common ground when we speak to outsiders and to one another as fellow members of that confederacy. 
That's the first thing that we see from Paul in his preaching. He claims that common ground that we can all stand upon. But then he doesn't stop there. He uses that common ground to connect to Christ. That's the second piece, to connect to Christ. And so you might imagine Paul's preaching as a kind of funnel, okay? So it starts out really wide as he encompasses the whole world and the whole swath of humanity. He says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he starts out big, but then the funnel narrows. It gets smaller and smaller as everything drives toward and leads to and finally culminates in this one man, Jesus. Paul says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by one man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, when we are bearing witness to this hope, giving an account for the hope that is in us, we start on common ground, but then we always seek to connect to Christ to connect to Christ when we are asked and invited to give an account. In our Bible study, we've been uh, using these materials from Pastor Tim Keller. And he tells a story elsewhere of one day he's at church and this guest comes, a woman whom we didn't recognize, and he asks her, as he often asks guests, why'd you come? You know, how'd you end up here this morning? And she says, well, I, I gotta tell you. I, I work at this big media outfit, a really like cutthroat kind of workplace. And I made this mistake a few weeks ago, a huge mistake. It should have cost me my job. But my boss, who's well-liked and well-respected throughout the, throughout the company, he stepped in and he took the blame for me. He, he made all the excuses. He took all of the responsibility. And he said, you know, I haven't trained her well enough. I, I didn't teach her well enough, I, whatever it might be. He's the one who took the blame. And, you know, he had that kind of career capital that he could take that hit. He didn't lose his job, but it, it did hurt his reputation. She goes on to say, well, I wanted to know more about this. So I went to him and I said, hey, thank you so much for doing that. You saved my job, but, but why did you do it? And he says, oh, you know, it was nothing. Don't think twice about it. She's like, no, seriously, why did you do it? I've been around this business long enough to know that what bosses usually do is they take the credit unjustly. What I don't see is them taking the blame. He's like, oh, really, it was no big deal. I was just, you know, don't, don't think twice about it. And she's like, okay, that's very nice. Enough. I need to know. Why did you do it? He says, all right, fine. Because you pushed me, okay? I'm a Christian. There, you happy? I'm a Christian, and I believe that my Savior took the blame for me. And so now I make it my mission to try and absorb more blame, more hurt in myself than I dole out to others. All right? That's it. And then she says to him, so where do you go to church? And thus she showed up on that Sunday morning. This is what we do as believers. We connect to Christ when given that opportunity and accounting for our hope. And, you know, so often it's as simple as what our moms have taught us at their knee, the Sunday school answer that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Not simply as some, you know, mindless mantra that we utter, but instead as a life preserver that we cling to. Jesus. Jesus. So Paul claims common ground. He connects to Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. 
he goes on finally to call to action. Call to action. He concludes by saying, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now this word that he speaks includes both law and gospel. It's law, obviously, in the sense that it's this call to repentance. All people everywhere need to repent, to turn away from the death-dealing ways, and instead to turn to the source of life, the true life that is found only in our Lord. In this respect, it doesn't have to be this kind of challenging, you're John the Baptist out on the precipice calling, repent, turn, or burn. That's the picture that we so often have of repentance and the summons to repentance. But more often, it's much simpler. In this respect, I like the, the question that I've learned from Pastor Newton, which is to ask someone, you know, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? It can often lead to a deeper conversation to bring us back to that summons to repentance, to come out of the darkness and into God's glorious light. So it's a call of law that Paul gives us here, but also a message of gospel, because he says uh, that now God has all people everywhere. It's not just for a select few, but it's a message that's for all people everywhere. And this too people need to hear. They all need to hear it. I think of a, a co-worker I had, this is many years ago before I was a pastor. His name was Chris. And Chris was like what you're just stereotypical non-believing Christian type guy. He had blue hair, he painted his fingernails black and had the eyeliner and all this kind of stuff. But you know what? He was always asking questions. And he and I sometimes would go for a walk and we'd have these really good spiritual conversations. He was asking me all about faith. And, and finally, I just asked him one day, I'm like, Chris, what's the problem here, man? Like, what's holding you back? It sounds like you have this longing you, that you want to believe. He said, yeah, but here's the problem, Ryan. You are so good. You are so good. And I'm not. And how could this message be for me? What do you say to that, right? I'm like, dude, if you could see into my head, you would know not so good, right? Maybe because I'm not cursing all the time or getting drunk on the weekends, you think, oh, you're so good. But every one of us, deep in our hearts, has all sorts of sin. And I didn't tell him that, no, this Jesus, he did not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. Not for the righteous, but for sinners. And tried to share with him that source of hope. And he does one of these. He's like, hmm, that's different. <laughs> I don't know if Chris ultimately came to trust in Jesus, but ultimately it was a call to action to say, you know what? This message is for everyone, everywhere. This message is for you. Don't assume that that's there. Don't take that for granted because the question that everyone carries in their heart is not just, is there hope? But can I have hope? Can I have hope? And Richard John Newhouse says, Christ is the answer to which every human life is the question. Christ is the answer to which every human life is the question. It's our privilege as part of the great sending of God, as he sends us out on his mission, it's our privilege to claim common ground, to connect to Christ, and ultimately to call to action, to call folks to trust in him, to lean on him, to cling to him as our one great life preserver. And Jesus has given us this further assurance. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. 
We're not alone in this task and in this mission. And so we say simply, as you and I learned at our mother's knee, Jesus loves me. This I know. That's why I can have hope. And you too. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.